Hello, and welcome to another installment of Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. In this episode, Dr. Kevin Butterfield sits down with Dr. Jim Ambusky, the Washington Library's new digital historian and future podcast host. As a friendly reminder, there's still time to register for our upcoming Lunch and Fellowship program featuring Mark Boonshoft, who will discuss his topic titled, Education and the Fight Over Who Should Rule at Home in the Early Republic on June 27th. More information about the event can be found on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org podcast. And now, without further ado, we join Drs. Butterfield and Ambusky in the studio. So let's begin here. Why did you become a historian? You know, it's an interesting question, um, and I think about that sometimes. And I really, I think I go back to when I was in elementary school. Um, you know, I grew up in Ohio. You know, grew up southwestern Ohio, just north of Dayton, and so uh, that's an area rich with not only history of the early Republic, but also Native American history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was fortunate to go to a school that really emphasized local history and regional history, and um, early national period and Native American history played a big role uh, in that curriculum. And I can remember learning about uh, the Hopewell peoples who lived in Ohio, then you know, learning about the transformation of Ohio from a territory into a state, um, largely uh, uh, under the aegis of, uh, well, it, Ohio became a state in 1803, but you know, George Washington and his administration had a profound impact on the way that uh, my home came into being. And, and I, you know, I, I, I think I always had that in the back of my mind as I got older and, you know, eventually went to college, went to Miami University in, in southwest Ohio. Um, that uh, is one of the very, very early land-grant colleges in what becomes the United States. Uh, and there was always that sense of, of, of history in place around me. And um, I got very lucky at Miami. I studied with Andrew Caton as an undergraduate. Uh, and then uh, he was my master's thesis advisor. And, you know, Drew unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, but many of our listeners will know that, you know, Drew was one of the foremost historians of the early republic, mm-hmm. uh, certainly of the Midwest. And, and he had a way of conveying uh, history through narrative uh, that I think few people do. And it, I was really taken with that kind of storytelling. Uh, and I thought, well, um, maybe I can give this a shot and, and I can do this too. So a love of history is one thing, and I think a lot of us have it. Uh, but the, the idea that you can make a living at it is a little different. Uh, when did you decide that you wanted to go uh, and pursue the Ph.D.? And, and what sort of career uh, uh, goals did you have at that point? I think it was... Um, it was as I was finishing my master's program. I think I had a, a nice conversation with Carla Pastana, and uh, who was on my, on my master's thesis committee, and she was at Miami at the time. And you know, she very kindly said, "Listen, this is a tough road. Um, there, there are very few jobs. There are um, very few opportunities at the moment. But if you're willing to stick it out and at least make a go of it, something good might happen." Um, and I'm stubborn enough that I said. Well, maybe I can beat the odds. And, um, uh, you know, I, I took three years off. I worked for Miami University for a while, and then I eventually came back uh, for my PhD at the University of Virginia. Um, you know, one of the best places to study early American history in the country. And, you know, I thought if I play my cards right, work hard, uh, and if I diversify my skill set beyond simply the expected tenure track 
uh, lie, then perhaps some good things will happen. You know, I, uh, I've gotten lucky so far, and I, you know, we can't discount the fact that luck plays a huge role in getting these kinds of positions. And mm-hmm. so I'm very grateful for that. But you know, I just uh, try to work as hard as I can and, and try to make good things happen. When you came into uh, UVA, uh, uh, did you were you fully committed to the early national period at that point? Uh, and and where where did you think your your own research interest might take you? And how did that change over time? Because I know it always does. Right, that's a great question. So I did my master's thesis actually on the iconography of coinage in the early republic and how those reflected. Uh, ideas of nationalism. I mean, in one of my chapters deals with the debate in Congress over whether or not to put Washington on uh, a piece of money. You know, some some folks saw that as perfectly appropriate, given that he was the kind of uh, star which around which uh, you know the United States orbited. Others thought, well, this this is, is this pretension to monarchy, and we just beat a George who had his face on the money. Why in the world are we going to do that again? So what happened? Uh, they ultimately decided that that Lady Liberty was a much more appropriate emblem of American sovereignty and American identity than uh, one man. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, you know, that trend persists well into the early 20th century until, you know, much more recent times. So I thought, you know, maybe I'll stick with the early national period. But then um, I was in the United Kingdom. Uh, my wife actually has a PhD in English history, and so she was going on her first big research trip. She was studying Henry VIII and uh, the concept of treason and gender uh, during his reign. And so I tagged along for a little bit. We went to Edinburgh um, uh, in Scotland as a little side trip. And there, that's really where my interest began to change. We were touring the castle in Edinburgh, and if you go into the dungeon, you'll see a, a really nice exhibit uh, about uh, uh, people who were in prison there, and a number of Americans were in prison there during the Revolutionary War. And on one of the doors of the dungeon, one of the prisoners had carved the Stars and Stripes. Wow. Uh, so wonderful piece of material culture um, that you can you know, begin to ask a number of questions about. And I thought, well, maybe I'll do a project around this. You know? Well, let's spend two minutes on that, because I'm curious. So why, were, why were there American prisoners uh, there? Uh, I think, you know, that's actually a wonderful question that I never really fleshed out. I think in in some respects it reflects people who are captured on the high seas and simply taken back to Edinburgh and prison there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a good question I have an answer for, truth mm. be told. And the reason uh, I don't have an answer for it is I immediately found that I couldn't find a lot of sources around it. Interesting. Uh, there may be some there in the War Museum that's at in the castle itself. I'm not quite sure. What I did find, though, as I w- was looking about, were the writings of uh, a man named John Witherspoon, uh, who eventually becomes the president of what is now Princeton University. It was called College of New Jersey at the time. And Witherspoon was uh, a Scottish Presbyterian minister. He came from Paisley to take up the presidency of the College of New Jersey in 1768. And Witherspoon was very active in recruiting his fellow Scots to settle in the colonies. Uh, and there's some controversy around that. Uh, I've you know, encountered a couple of letters uh, where he's writing back to critics at, at home saying, you know, I'm actually doing a good thing for our fellow countrymen. They, they have little opportunity in Scotland, uh, so we should encourage them to come here where they can still be British, still be a part of the empire, but prosper. And... That was the genesis of, of my eventual PhD research, which looked at immigration from Scotland 
in sort of the post-Seven Years' War period through the end of the Revolution and examining the ways in which this movement of people, some say as high as 40,000, the numbers aren't particularly clear, uh, but nevertheless, this, this group of people generated a lot of controversy as they left the highlands and the islands and, and areas north of Glasgow to settle in places like North Carolina, Georgia, New York, um, Virginia, uh, Philadelphia, uh, to start a different life. Um, and I wanted to understand how that exodus, so to speak, shaped perceptions of empire, how it complicated what the British thought they were going to do to reform the empire in the post-Seven Years' War period, mm-hmm. uh, and how that shaped a, a colonist perception of the empire uh, when they were dealing with an infusion of people that were familiar to them, um, but coming in rapid numbers. When um, uh, we talk about uh, international migration, we often think about both the, the the push and the pull factors, mm-hmm. what, what might be leading someone to leave a certain place and what might be enticing them to go to a particular place. Uh, what, were, there, were there push factors in Scotland? What, what, what might be leading someone to think uh, it's, it's time to get out of here? There are two really significant things going on uh, in Scotland at the time. One begins in the early 18th century after the Act of Union. And so in 1707, England and Scotland joined together to form Great Britain. And when that happens, uh, there starts to be a a great series of social changes taking place, particularly in the Highlands, where Highland clan chiefs uh, who are bound to their people through loyalty and sense of duty and service, there's a kind of feudal relationship between a clan chief and his people, that begins to break down uh, in large measure because many clan chiefs become more ambitious because they're part of this uh, political and economic union with England now. They see more opportunity in London than they do in Edinburgh or than they do in Inverness. Uh, and they begin to remake themselves as a kind of English proprietor in which they see their people less as um, a kind of feudal, fictive kinship relationship and more in terms of landlord and tenant. Hmm. Uh, and over time, particularly beginning in the 1750s, but increasingly in the 1760s, they begin to raise rents uh, to augment their income. And that the combination of that social change and that economic pressure begins to push many people uh, onto ships to go to North America. Uh, sadly, uh, in a lot of ways, because many of the people didn't want to leave, but they felt they had no choice. Hmm. Um, but Scots who were already in the colonies were acting as a poll agent because they were riding back home to their to their family members, to their friends. Uh, men like Witherspoon were very active in recruiting people, saying, "You know, you can you can have your own land here. Um, there's opportunity for you if you if you come and are willing to improve the land." Now, you know, the way it worked is if you didn't improve the land, you lost it if you got hmm. a land grant. But um, and that was very. Um, enticing to many people. Just out of Scotland. curiosity, was there any place else they were going besides North America as they left uh, Scotland? Uh, some were going to the Caribbean, you know, Jamaica. Hmm. Uh, Jamaica's long been tied to Scotland through Glasgow and the uh, slave trade and the tobacco trade and, and other forms of, of commerce. But really, it's um, they're going to North America. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, they go, uh, are there... Uh, 
two or three colonies that top the list of where, where they head to? Really, two or three colonies top the list. One, North Carolina. Uh, it's what we now know called Campbell County near Fayetteville. That was a central hub for Scots, particularly Islanders, uh, in the 1760s and 1770s. There, were, there was an earlier migration in the 1730s um, in the, the aftermath of the, some of the initial Jacobite rebellions in the early part of the 18th century, mm-hmm. uh, and some other economic migrants come as well, and they act as a poll factor. They are riding back home to their kin, uh, encouraging them to come, and especially after the Seven Years' War is over and there is a, a nominal peace, and the British government is interested in developing the Western lands and, and uh, in, in a meaningful way, not you know, an expansive way, but you know, in a way that kind of backfills forward east from, uh, from the frontier line. Mm-hmm. Uh, they begin to go in great numbers to North Carolina. Uh, also New York, uh, particularly the Mohawk River Valley, where uh, Sir William Johnson, uh, who many folks might know, was the superintendent of the Northern District for Indian Affairs, very powerful figure in colonial America. He has an estate along the Mohawk River. He's very active in, in recruiting people to come settle on his lands there. And also uh, up the Hudson River in the Lake Champlain co- Corridor, um, many Highland soldiers uh, received uh, land grants in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War as compensation for their service. Um, now there is a mix of English and, and uh, Scottish settlers up there as well. But the, and part of that uh, land-grant procedure was designed to entice uh, kind of a uh, ready-made force along the, uh, that corridor. Um, New York, but New York and North Carolina are the big, big draws. As you were working through this project, uh, is this when you began to develop uh, skills in, in what we call digital history, uh, some sort of way of, of, of uh, working with these materials in a way differently than just reading them and writing about them? Well, in some sense, yes. It wasn't the project itself, but it was a it was out of a necessity to earn more money. Truth mm-hmm. be told, you know, okay. um, um, you know, for those listeners who have never been through a PhD program, our stipends only go so far, and so you know, a lot of us regularly work you know, second or third jobs. And I made a conscious decision to work uh, in a job that uh, would help, you know, enhance my own skill set. And so, and actually, uh, I began uh, sort of my non-stipend job as a research assistant at the Washington Papers. And then after a year, I went to work for Sue Perdue at an organization called Documents Compass at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. And they were building this really cool tool called People of the Founding Era. Mm -hmm. Um, And essentially what that is, it's a massive database and a a prosopographical tool or a a massive compilation of biographies of all the individuals who appear in in the letters or the footnotes of the Founding Fathers' papers projects. Uh, and so the idea with that is you'd have one central repository where you could learn about these individuals. You could see social relationships between them, you know, run some analyses. Uh, uh, and that, that kind of really got me interested in, in the power of applying technology and different kinds of tools to our traditional uh, documentary source base. Can I still find this database? You can. Uh, it is part of the Rotunda package. Um, offered by the University of Virginia Press. So unfortunately, it's behind a paywall. So if you have a university affiliation, you have access to it, and if you don't, you may not? You may not. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we have access to it here, and so Mm -hmm. if if anyone 
who's passing through here in the next few weeks wants to come take a look, I'd be happy to show them. That's great. Uh, and uh, so you, you start down that path. Um, uh, what, what was a, day, a typical day for you uh, when you're a, a research assistant on a project like this? What kind of things are you doing? A lot of what I did on People of the Founding Era was verifying that we had the correct individuals uh, in the database, uh, removing duplicates, uh, checking against the source base to make sure we had the correct information. Um, uh, you know, a lot of the work is, is populating the database, you know, it, it, it making that data set to make the research possible. What about with the papers of George Washington? What did you do there? Papers of George Washington, I had a, a very nice year working on Revolutionary War, Volume 21. Um, that covers the expansive period of June and July of 1779. Okay. Um, tell, I, tell me something about June or <laughs> July of 1779. Uh, that June and July of 1779, that's the... Um, that is, let's see, that's the uh, period where there's the uh, raid on Stony Point. Mm -hmm. um, Anthony Wayne leads an assault against Stony Point. They actually capture it, but then eventually give it back. Um, one of the most important things I think I did with that particular volume, and, and that volume was edited by Bill Ferrero, who's still at the papers, is uh, I helped flesh out uh, the uh, narrative about the uh, British, or the, actually the Hessian raids along the Connecticut coast that summer. Um, these were... Uh, raids designed to uh, basically intimidate and, and enact psychological warfare against uh, people on the Connecticut coast, burn their supplies, whatnot. Uh, that those events produced a lot of uh, legal depositions, actually, where people described, um, you know, horrific events, um, you know, things that probably aren't suitable for for a radio program to talk about. But if you want to read about those, they're in that volume, mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, at, you know, after a year, I, th I thought, well, let's try something different, and you know, that's when I found PFE. PFE, people of the founding era. Sorry. Very good, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, court records, uh, legal records. I know there's another project that you've worked on, and I wonder if you could uh, introduce us to this because it takes you back across the Atlantic. It does. So for the past three years, I was at the University of Virginia School of Law Library where I worked on a project called the Scottish Court of Session Records Project. And uh, what we're building, and, and there'll be a public release in July uh, after many, many years of long labor, um, this, this is a digital archive holding what are called session papers. These are the printed papers produced by the Court of Session, which is Scotland's Supreme Civil Court. In the early 18th century, the Court of Session mandated that documents presented to it in appellate cases be given in print. So this is unlike what you would see in England. This is unlike what you would see in the colonies at the time they're, where they're dealing with manuscript. Mm -hmm. And they do this in part because they're trying to reduce errors associated with hand copying these documents. And so usually on the court, uh, there there's at least a quorum of nine judges up to 15 at the full court sitting. So they all they they all get a copy. The litigants get a copy. Their their advocates, what they call lawyers, get a copy. Other people get copies, and so they they are uh, producing a number of copies of these documents. The UVA Law Library acquired a collection of these materials about thirty years ago, thirty five years ago in the nineteen eighties, and they just kind of sat there. Um, uh, I guess people you know weren't quite sure what to make of them, and that kind of encapsulates. Um, the story of these materials themselves writ large. So what do, you, what do you make of them? What, what's something that someone could dive into these papers and discover? Oh, that's, uh, what couldn't you discover? That's the best thing about these things. Let's hear it. Um, 
what's important to know about these records is since they're civil court records, you're getting snapshots of people's lives in either moments of crisis or they're just trying to unwind a bad business or something to that effect. So what you, what you might find in a session paper at any given moment is a case involving Virginia merchants who are disputing a payment with their Glasgow creditors. Um, we've found cases where uh, individuals living in Chesterfield County, who are living in Norfolk, who are living uh, all around the Chesapeake Basin, are filing lawsuits against Glaswegians, and Glaswegians are filing lawsuits against them, contesting a payment, uh, contesting the terms of a business partnership, uh, trying to uh, force one side or the other to you know, resolve a property dispute. And in those documents, you're not simply getting the legal arguments, but you're getting the evidence. That's the amazing thing about these records, is that they're not simply pr printing the statutes that the Scots lawyers are citing. They are printing extracts of account books. They are printing correspondence. Mm -hmm. They are printing maps, architectural renderings. And so you have in these papers a kind of mini archive each time you open one. Uh, and, and so for a lot of the Virginia cases, for example, we're getting the terms of the company's partnership. You can see you know, who owns shares of what and at what price, what shipments are going back and forth, um, correspondence between uh, the company's uh, uh, partners in Glasgow and their factors or their, their store owners in the Chesapeake. Uh, and it, there's a good chance, we, this would take more research, but there's a concrete chance that a lot of the evidence that survives in these printed documents no longer does in manuscript form. Yeah. Uh, and so what we began to do, and this, this preceded me, my colleagues uh, Lauren Moulds and Randy Flaherty began this project, and then I came on board on the basis of my dissertation work. What we began to do was construct a digital archive to not only digitize and present these documents, but to describe them in ways that would make them extremely useful for people. And so we were building out a, a robust research platform in which you can not only see the documents, but you can learn about the people who are named in them, the locations involved in the dispute, the locations where these people lived, um, documents that have the kind of rich, unexpected evidence that we see. So does that mean with each document that mentions John Smith and Place X, you separately, you and your and, and people you worked with, separately would go out and compile everything you could discover about John Smith and about Place X and, and bring it together? That's the ultimate goal. I mean, in, we, we did, couldn't do it for everybody because there's so many people named in these, but particular people, you know, principally the litigants involved, if we could, mm -hmm. certainly the lawyers and the judges, that information is more readily available. Um, our friends in Edinburgh, uh, where the majority of these papers live, uh, there's about 6,000 volumes of session papers from the 6,000 volumes? 6,000 volumes. Wow. And if, if you think about the fact that a volume probably runs about 1,000 pages, Jeez. Uh, there is a wealth of material uh, untapped describing uh, uh, people and places circulating in the British Atlantic that we may never have really encountered before uh, until we began to think about um, doing this project. Now, um, we're just one element of this initiative. Um, in Edinburgh, they're at the Center for Research Collections uh, at the University of Edinburgh. They're spearheading a partnership with the Signet Library, the Writers of the Society of the Signet Library, essentially Scottish solicitors, and the Faculty of Advocates Library uh, to digitize 
these 6,000 volumes and to begin to apply the kind of uh, metadata methodology that, that we have here at UVA. Uh, and so we, we, we've been working together for about th three years now, I think, uh, on a kind of larger um, partnership that helps us think about how to make these kinds of rich materials more accessible to the public. And uh, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing stuff. Well, this is the kind of work that, that obviously um, ultimately brought you here to Mount Vernon. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about, um, uh, well, one thing very, very, very particular, sure. uh, you, you're, you're title, uh, and you're coming in as the digital historian, mm -hmm. and I think now we have a good sense of what digital history is. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not simply taking things and putting them online, but it's doing a, a great deal more than that. What, what kind of things uh, are you thinking about in, in your uh, um, opening uh, days and, and weeks and months here at Mount Vernon? Uh, what are some of the kinds of things that we, you think you might be particularly excited to do? Oh, well, I mean, there's so much... Good stuff. I mean, I, I think one of the things that attracted me to this job is the, the amount of, number of times I kept hearing there are so many stories to tell. Uh, and I think that's true. I think there are you know, a, a lot of wonderful collections here at the estate and in our library, and then also a lot of partnerships we could forge with individuals and, and institutions across the country. Mm -hmm. One of the things I'm thinking about right now uh, is doing a digital project centered around the distillery, but particularly the, the distillery accounts and um, uh, information uh, uh, regarding that. I mean, it's probably no surprise now that, uh, that since I'm interested in Scots and James Anderson, who was you know, Washington's farm manager mm -hmm. for the last couple of years of his life and convinced Washington to start the distillery, was from Edinburgh. And so you know, immediately I'm like, okay, well, we've got to do something. But, but I think there's a, a good uh, project to do there that would involve you know, transcribing the uh, distillery accounts themselves and also wrapping those in interpretive content in ways that I've done on other projects mm -hmm. and leveraging the expertise we have here, not only in uh, the people who run the grist mill, but the, the gentleman who interprets James Anderson uh, and uh, uh, putting out and, and you know, taking advantage of the fact that we are in a craft distillery boom right now. And so... Of course. Um, you know, maybe we'll even issue a challenge that says, you know, here's here's George Washington's recipe. You know, it's of course all of his whiskey was unaged, so it's not you know a fine single malt like you might find from Isla. But you know, <laughs> let's you know, hey folks, let's see what you can make of it. Um, yeah. uh, and you know, some other things too. I think you know, there's a lot of potential with Washington's maps. Um, you know, we here at the library have a digital collections where. We have a number of his land plats. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think you know we have talked about maybe trying to rebuild, uh, uh, you know, visually a kind of map that shows Washington's land holdings as they change over time. Yeah, uh, thinking about ways of doing that. Not uh, simply here in Mount Vernon, but uh, pretty far flung. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, in fact, in my dissertation, I, you know, one of the last, I think, the last chapter. Um, closes or not closes, but it, it, there's a story in there where Washington um, asked John Witherspoon in 1784 if he can go back to, when he's in Scotland on a on a on a fundraising trip, you know, so soon after peace, because of course people want to give money um, right after the fraction uh, the destruction of the empire. Um, Washington asked Witherspoon, "Hey, I've got these lands in Ohio. Can you find some maybe some Highlanders for me?" Uh, and so, you know. It, might be something involved with that. Is he able to sell them? Uh, no. So what actually happens is, is that Witherspoon, uh, he goes to you know on 
the, the cover story is he's going to raise money for the College of New Jersey because he's thought, well, you know, we just fought this big war and, you know, it ended up with our independence, but surely people are over it by now. And, and in a spirit of education, they're going to give money for the college. Mm-hmm. What he's also doing quite secretly uh, is is he's looking to recruit more people. And he brings some back with him, but they don't settle on Washington's lands. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but to, to get back to our topic of discussion, yeah, I think... You know, building out a, a, a spatial visualization of Washington's lands holdings, how they change over time, I think would be really interesting. And that could open up a whole uh, uh, range of questions, not only about the progression of the Republic West, but also, you know, help us discuss issues like dispossession of native lands, things of that nature. Um, and, and, and we go from there. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of fun stuff. And, you know, the encyclopedia, which is you know we see as we as the kind of authoritative source uh, on Washington and his world, I think is only going to get better. Um, you know, I, my predecessors, um, Joe in particular, has done a lot of terrific work on building that out, and I think talking about the George Washington Digital Encyclopedia. Uh, yes, indeed, and and I you know I think there's a lot of room to grow there as well, and to take advantage of recent scholarship. Um, you know, speaking of native peoples, would love to have encyclopedia entries written by native peoples and native scholars. Um, you know, and, and starting with, you know, my own Ohio homeland, you know, I'd, I'd love to work uh, with my friends uh, who I know in, in, at other institutions who uh, have written about or are Native uh, and flesh out biographies on people like Little Turtle and uh, Blue Jacket and, and, and serious events in which Washington was involved mm-hmm. that affected Native peoples. Um, I'd love to have their voices on our site. Well, last question for you. I, I take it that you also will be uh, coming to this side of the microphone and uh, doing some uh, podcast interviews in the future. Is that right? That is right. Um, folks will have to get used to my voice. That's good. <laughs> well, I'm glad I had a chance to introduce you, and, and, uh, and thank you so much for, for joining us here today. I look forward to talking to you again. Oh, thank you, Kevin. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.